Well, good morning. Welcome to the English Sunday School class for Yongsan Baptist Church. This Sunday, 4 September 2022. Man. And uh, hope everybody is prepared for the weather this coming week. I know that we're we're dealing with the possibility of a typhoon making landfall tomorrow night. So pray for people that might be in that, the path of that down in Cheju and Busan. Um, it's been a little bit since we finished the sixth unit of our study on biblical creationism. Uh, I, I took three weeks of leave and Pastor was graciously filling in during that time. But we finished the set of lessons where we were looking up at evidence from the heavens for biblical creationism. And now our final unit, seventh unit, right? Seven is the number of completion and perfection. Maybe we'll be done. That's what everybody's praying online. <laughs> but this final unit will focus on the evidence from the opposing worldview, right? Those that of evolution, um, and help us to look out. So we've been looking, right? We're going to look out for commonly common evolutionary assumptions, arguments, and attacks uh, throughout this this blog. Uh, but today, as we talk about evidence from the opposition and um, in the discussion of the concept, I think, of creation versus evolution, I didn't give myself enough time, so I didn't finish the uh, presentation. But since we have such a short class today, I may not get to the point that I didn't finish, and it may be okay. You may never even know, except that I told you. <laughs> as we've discussed, Throughout uh, this series, there are two sides to the creation-evolution debate. Really, we don't give any credence to any other point of view, like aliens or existentialism or the matrix or any of that, right? There are really two views. There's creation, according to the Bible. There's evolution that discredits the Bible or discounts the Bible. Where one stands in that debate is determined by one's worldview. We discussed worldviews and how important they are and how... Um, your worldview impacts how you interpret the facts that you see in the world and that you hear and you learn. Worldviews come with basic assumptions. That's what we're going to focus on today because assumptions are okay. Assumptions are in everything we do. If, whether you're scientifically experimenting on a new phenomenon or you're just going to meet your neighbor, you have to start with assumptions, right? So assumptions are okay, but it's what we do with those assumptions that is necessary, right? Are we aware of those assumptions and are we honest about those assumptions? And can we objectively look at our assumptions in light of new information and assess whether those assumptions are, are consistent with our worldview and consistent with the facts around us, okay? So, we will start with the assumptions of evolution. Some of this will be a review. Some of this will be going a little more in depth than we did last year. But there are basic assumptions of evolution that correlate on the same topic with basic assumptions of creation. So the first basic assumption of evolution is that the basic principle of evolution is true, right? So they take for granted that evolution is true. That is the first um, assumption. It's true, right? Uh, F.M. Wuketitz, that's how you say his name, said in one of many works where this is admitted, we presuppose the essential correctness of biological evolution. Yes, we assume 
that evolution is universally valid. They have to. If they don't assume that it is universally valid, then they will be looking for holes in it. But, as we've talked about with science before, the whole point is to look for holes in their theory. Right? Alright, second assumption of evolution is that evolution is a universal principle, that it applies universally. The best quote I could find is from Huimar von Dittruth, the principle, okay, from this guy, the principle of evolution not only holds for life on earth, it extends much further. It is quite clearly the most widely valid principle imaginable because it encompasses the entire universe. All of reality around us is characterized by a history of self-development. That's a key term. Biological evolution is only part of this universal process. And he's not alone in his belief that it is universal. This is an assumption of evolution. Whether you're talking about evolution of a concept or evolution of a of a kind of thing to another kind of thing, what he means by this is that evolution is the universal principle. We evolve. Plans evolve, right? Processes evolve. They want to talk in social sciences about how our, our policies have evolved. They want to talk in history about how man has evolved in, in civilization, right? Everybody wants to talk about evolution. It is a universal process that must be ingrained in education, in speech, in literature, right? Evolution is the universal process. It's an assumption. Another assumption is there's no creator or designer. There is only matter. And if you remember from our definitions previously, this is materialism. Not materialism as in I want to buy stuff, but materialism as in the naturalistic philosophy, right? Naturalism and materialism go together as Everything can be explained by natural processes, and there is nothing supernatural. There is only matter, and how matter interacts with energy. And that's, that is how they explain everything, right? So there is nothing supernatural. There's only matter. There's no creator, no designer. The, there are a couple of quotes here. This one from Ernest Kahana says, it's absurd and absolutely preposterous. Those are pretty emotional words to believe that a living cell could come into existence by itself. I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. Emotional words are not. But, notwithstanding, I do believe it because I cannot imagine anything else. Imagine is also a key word. Okay. There's another quote that I didn't pull by, I believe, uh, Stephen Gould, who said that along the same lines, you know, evolution of non-life into life is completely absurd, but we have to believe it because the only alternative is special creation, and that is unbelievable. He knows that there is an alternative, but he refuses to believe it. So here's another quote. This view, evolution, frees us from the difficulty of assuming that at some strange, at some stage during the course of the development of our Earth, after animal life had started, something immaterial or psychical, nobody knows from where, stepped in and caused various effects in brains and brain capacities. So this is saying that evolution as a theory 
frees them from the difficulty of theological evolution because it doesn't he's not describing actual creation right he's describing what we would consider theological evolution or the gap theory or the day age theory right where God used the process of evolution to turn animals into men okay but even that he's saying is is stupid and he wants to be free from that assumption so pure evolution right means you don't have to think that way you don't have to try to compromise which and he's not he's not wrong because if evolution were true it would free you from those odd assumptions of supernatural interaction another assumption of evolution is that matter is taken for granted as if matter is eternal right the, uh, the law of the conservation of energy and Einstein's equivalence of matter and energy, that's the E equals MC squared formula, that everybody knows the formula, but nobody really knows what it is, right? It's an equivalence of energy and matter it, mathematically, right? So those two things, the law of conservation of energy and Einstein's equivalence of matter and energy, state that the sum total of all matter in our universe is constant. Matter can't be created or destroyed. And because there's an equivalence, energy can't be created or destroyed. That is what we consider laws of, um, uh, in, in the, the physics and thermodynamics realm. But therefore, in that way of thinking, right, there's no scientific explanation for any origin of matter or energy. So they assume, again, this is assumptions, that all the energy must have existed before the Big Bang. They assume the Big Bang happened. That's the only way that they can explain how everything came to be the way it is from nothing. But it, was, it wasn't exactly nothing because all the energy had to be there. All the energy that ever would exist had to already be energy. And then energy and matter can, take, can trade places, right? It can be energy, it can be matter, but the total is constant. So it had to have pre-existed the beginning. The, is it on that one? Yeah. So we'll see how that how that contrasts with what we believe as, as uh, creationists in a little bit. Another assumption of evolution is that the principle of uniformity. We talked about uniformitarianism last year, right? The the thought process that as things are now, they have always been and they will always be. We talked about Bible verses that say that that's foolish, right? But the principle of uniformity. It, it, it's an assumption in that as far as scientific laws are concerned that they follow today, there is no difference between the origin of the earth and of all life and their subsequent development, right? All of it is the same in their mind. They think of it all as one smooth time flow. The mechanisms of the process through which the earth and all life originated, in their assumption, were subject to the same laws that govern present observable reality. Right? But there's never been any difference and there never will be any difference. Okay? That is really a, drive, a, a, key, a key principle in their assumptions that drive the long time epochs. Right? Like they have to come up with millions and millions of years because of observable. Um, what they can observe now requires millions of years. Right? So they have, if they're thinking from the concept of uniformity, they have to have millions and billions of years. Another assumption 
is the self-organization of matter. When I, remember I said that self-development was a key terminology in, in evolution? Self-organization, self-development. Um, it, it is the organism itself that turns itself into a new thing. It is, it is no interaction on the part of anything or anyone else. Um, evolution relies on processes that allow increases in organization, something to, to go from simple to more complex, from non-life to life, from a lower to a higher life form. Evolution depends on that assumption, even if there's no evidence for it. Okay, so they start with that assumption that matter self-organizes over time. Then there are the driving forces of evolution. Mutation, selection, isolation, mixing, chance, long periods of time, ecological changes, uh, death. These are all indispensable factors of evolution. In fact, um, biologist Harold Moore states that if there were no death, then no life would have existed. There is no way around this axiom of evolution theory, evolutionary theory. And he's, he's not wrong. In, within, their, within their way of thinking, death is the champion. Because it's only by death and death and death and death that you bring about changes in the gene pool, right? You have to, the, the, the ones that don't meet the survival of the fittest, right? There has to be a best and everybody else has to die. Then there has to be a best and everybody else has to die. And death is the champion of evolution. Which is, again, we'll see that contrast against um, creation. Another one, another assumption, is that there is no plan and no purpose. They have to assume, if you believe evolution, you assume there is no plan and there is no purpose. It's all random chance occurrences over long, insurmountably unintelligible periods of time. Uh, the same guy, uh, Wrench, that said um, that, what did he say? Oh, that it, it frees them, you know, from the, the assumptions of theological evolution. He also said that it's not necessary. This is how he, how he calmed his students, right? When they would battle with issues of, uh, you know, the myth mythology of God in their mind, it's not necessary to assume a mysterious guiding principle for the purposefulness observed in the structure and life of all organisms. Neither was a wise creator necessary for their origin. Oh well, I'm glad you told me that. It's you know, you're admitting that there is a purposefulness observed, and you're admitting that there's a structure to all life and all organisms. But you know, it's not necessary that there was anything behind the purpose. And it's not necessary that a wise creator was necessary for the origin of these things. Everything else we observe in life shows us that if something exists, it had to have been made, created, built, engineered. There had to have been, if there is a design that you observe, there was a designer, right? That is absolutely logical and it is irrefutable. My watch had to have had a watchmaker. My shoes had to have had a cobbler. That camera had to have an inventor, right? There is somebody that does everything that has design and purpose. There's also, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that later, but um, it's, it's preposterous 
to just say, oh, it'll be okay. It's like standing on the Titanic, going down into the water, telling everybody, don't worry about it, go back to your cabin, it will be okay. That's a lie. You don't have my best interest at heart. Okay. No plan, no purpose, no time limits for the age of the universe. Um, Karsten Brisch. Brisch. Yeah, that's how you say that. <laughs> Said, when unlimited time is available, then sometime, somewhere, one individual will progress to the next step. He means of evolution. When he rolls a six, that means when he gets lucky, right? He's saying that life's a gamble. And after millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people die, one guy or girl, right, eventually is going to get lucky and they are going to be the ones that advance to the next level of evolution. And that, my friends, is about all the hope that evolution can give you. Final assumption, oh sorry, most important assumption, and we talked about this last year, the present is the key to the past. The present is the key to the past. So then, this means that present day observational data may be extrapolated as far back in time as is necessary, or as you wish, right, to answer the origin concept. So here's an example. The present annual rate of erosion of the Grand Canyon. Remember when we, looked, we studied the Grand Canyon in geology, when we were looking down? The present annual rate of erosion in the Grand Canyon is 0.15 millimeters. That's barely measurable. 0.15 millimeters a year. Okay? That, if you extrapolate that as the standard, back to when the Grand Canyon was flat, that's 10 million years. So you're saying it took 10 million years to erode that canyon, which we know, obviously, because we studied geology in this class, we know that's preposterous. The current measured rate of expansion of the universe based on the Hubble constant places the time of the Big Bang at 18 billion years in the past. When I was a kid, the age of the universe was 4 billion years. And now, I'm not much of a kid anymore, but it's already 18 billion years. The age of the universe has more than quadrupled since I went through grade school. Does that mean we were wrong? Or does that mean that we're making something up? Okay. Um, there is a German astronomer named Otto Heckmann who criticizes this remarkable sport of uniformitarian application of the present as the key to the past. He describes it as um, calculating with reckless abandon. And I, I like that. I think that's exactly what's going on. Uh, because they don't care about the answers, they only care about the assumption. And then finally, there's a critical view of the Bible, right? To believe evolution, you have to have a critical view of the Bible. Um, there's no personal God, there cannot be because there's nothing supernatural, right? So the Bible has, must have been written by humans for humans, and that's the assumption. No matter what we try to show them from the Bible, their assumption again, from their worldview, is that that Bible was written by humans for humans. So anywhere it claims to be supernaturally inspired, they're lying, now I distrust them. So even if it does seem to be prophetic, 
obviously it was written after the fact and they just told people that it was written before the fact because I distrust them. I distrust them because of my worldview. So now you get to the to the, really the crux of the matter with all of these assumptions of evolution, right? And this is basically where we're going to get to today. <laughs> with all of these assumptions of evolution, right? You, you can see that these are ingrained in them. Most of them aren't going to be able to, especially those who don't know evolution to a collegiate or graduate level, right? The people who don't study evolution, they just believe evolution, right? Because believing is different than acting. We, we could get into a whole class about that, about what belief is and what belief isn't. And we may do that this, this unit. But belief is not an action. It's not a state of mind. It's not a mental process, right? But if somebody believes evolution, and we'll get into why I say believes evolution, <laughs> but all of these assumptions are keyed into their worldview. So you can't use the Bible to convince them that they're wrong because they have a critical assumption of the Bible, right? They don't see the Bible as God's word, so they will automatically rebuff any, any, any attempt to use the Bible as evidence, right? The same way that you'll, you'll hear people say, okay, convince me that God exists, but you can only use naturalistic explanations. Well, you're trying to tell me that I have to convince you my worldview is right by using your worldview. That's dumb. Who does that? You're not going to convince me that naturalism is right by using a, a creationist worldview because a creationist worldview is never going to agree with a naturalistic worldview. You can't hamstring me and then expect me to answer your question. So you'll see that because, again, we are so tied to our worldview. And what we have to be careful of, one, is pitying those who disagree with us, not judging those who disagree with us, especially when we, when we know they are hamstrung by a, a, a faulty worldview. But we also have to see our worldview and be careful to be consistent in what we believe and why we believe it as it relates to our worldview, right? Is our worldview purely creationist, purely biblical, or is it salted with things of the world? Do we really believe what we say we believe is really real? And so that's our challenge, is to focus on ourselves to say, okay, do I agree with these assumptions? Because if I agree with any of these assumptions, I'm going to tell you right now, none of these assumptions match the list of creation, okay? So all of these 11 assumptions, when we see the list next week for creation assumptions, they're all diametrically opposed, right? And I don't create that as a false dichotomy, it's not a false dilemma, um, you know, only two choices when there are more choices fallacy. This is not a fallacy. As we've discussed before, boiled down to it, there are only two sides of this coin. You either believe God or you don't believe God. That's, that's really the two sides. And so then we're saying everybody on the side that doesn't believe God, and to one extent or another, believes evolution. And I'm not talking about degrees of belief, right? Because you can believe creation, but not believe it enough that you would die for it. Believe evolution, but not believe it enough that you would die for it, right? So there are degrees of belief. But you either believe God and, and the account of creation as it is given in the Bible, or you believe evolution. And so that's, that's what we're trying to boil down to, is there are two sides, you need to know what side you're on, and then you need to know what, what it is 
that you believe if you say you believe evolution. You need to know what it is you believe if you say you believe creation. Because a lot of people claim one or the other and don't really understand it. And so I hope that this class has been um, a blessing in that expounding upon what it is you believe when you believe creation or you believe evolution. And we will continue through this study next week um, in lesson 1.2, I guess, about the uh, assumptions of creation and then look at how we can compare and contrast those. And then we'll get into, as I spoke about, some arguments that evolutionists give, some um, admissions, like what we've just seen. They, they admit to some things that you're like, that, oh, I haven't heard that before, but it, it's fully out there in the open. Um, and then some attacks that they, they wage against uh, creationists and creation and the Bible and God. Um, because they, your heart can tend to make you offensive. Not just offending someone isn't causing them to stumble, but going on the offensive and actually trying to attack the other side um, as, as a, in an emotional outburst, right? So we want to try to avoid that too. So again, we'll um, we'll get into more of this next week and in the weeks to come. Again, try to finalize this whole biblical creation study since last May and uh, bring it all together to a close so that we can uh, understand what it is we've studied. And for, and for what reason. Um, so, looking forward to being back with you next week. Let's pray, and then we'll get to the message. Almighty Father, God.